Okay, everyone, let's get started. Today, I'd like to welcome back Dr. Stein. Dr. Stein was, if you recall, the first person to give this uh, Thursday lecture, yes, a few years ago. So welcome back, and I think on this very topic. So <laughs> no, this is, uh, so Dr. Stein, to give you a little bit of background, she did her general surgery training at North Shore LIG, um, followed it up with a chief uh, residency year there as well. Did two fellowships, both here, uh, one in surgical critical care, the other in traumatology, and uh, since then has uh, risen quickly through the academic ranks um, uh, and uh, has been a clinical superstar as well here. Um, she has over 100 publications in a variety of areas, numerous grants. Um, she's chief of trauma at uh, Shock Trauma, and uh, just to give you a little uh, Thing that I learned in medical school um, from my surgeon uh, attending um, third year med school, I will not forget in Texas, he said, McCurdy, you know, what's a surgeon? And I thought this was sort of a, an odd question, and I had a few ideas for him, but uh, <laughs> just kidding. The, um, but he said, a surgeon is an internist who finishes training. So there are a handful of those here, and Dr. Stein is definitely one of those, so thanks, Deb. Thank you, Mike, for the very nice introduction. I don't know that how I feel about being called an internist, but oh, is this being recorded? Yes. Okay. I'll just have to. T well, because last time I don't think I knew I was being recorded, and I was like, there are f bombs everywhere. It was terrible, tragic. Uh, so what we're going to talk about today is coma and brain death. Uh, this is actually a little bit of a longer talk than an hour, so I'm going to flip through a bunch of stuff, but you guys will get this, so that way you have the is that as a resource if you want it. Um, when we talk about coma and brain death, I think first just talking a little bit, a very, very little bit about normal neuroanatomy. And we talk about the brain, we talk about obviously the cerebral cortex and the brain stem most commonly. And those are really the two key areas as I walk through a little bit at what happens in the setting of coma um, that, we'll, that we'll focus on. But there's this area called the reticular activating system. You probably remember from like that one day in medical school where you weren't falling asleep and you had to remember that for like your neurobiology exam. But the reticular activating system, which is a system that lives within the brainstem and the pons, that basically is what contributes to your level of um, arousal. And so it's a really key element when we talk about coma and what defines coma is to know that whether that reticular act activating system is functioning or non-functioning. So what is consciousness? And um, some of the fellows who've heard me talk about this a little bit up on the fourth floor, consciousness actually has two major components. One is the level of consciousness or the arousal or wakefulness, which is controlled by the reticular activating system. And the other is what we call the content of consciousness, which is your awareness and your interaction with the environment. And so when we talk about coma, coma is actually unarousable unresponsiveness. So you have disruption of both components of consciousness awareness and arousal. To be distinguished from syncope, concussion, or other states of transient unconsciousness, it has to persist for at least one hour, which is, as you all know, in ICD-10, right? When they talk about you know, loss of conscious greater than one hour, that pops you into that coma category. And there are two major causes, either bihemispheric diffuse cortical or white matter damage, and that can be either structural damage or metabolic damage, or brainstem lesions bilaterally, which affect the subcortical reticular activating system, okay? That's what leads to coma. If you do an EEG on patients in coma, it is characterized by this diffuse slowing on an EEG. 
And if you look at like, if you do like cerebral microdialysis, if you do other measures of cerebral um, uh, metabolic rate, you will notice, you'll see that in patients in coma, they have somewhere between about a 50 to 70% decrease in their cerebral metabolism in those patients, similar to what we do when we put patients under general anesthesia. Okay, so that's kind of the content, the context of, of when we talk about coma. Prognosis from coma is obviously influenced by a huge number of things, right? What caused the coma? What's the patient's overall general medical condition? How old are they? What are their clinical signs and symptoms associated with that coma? And as a general rule, and this is changing as we do things like targeted temperature management or post-cardiac arrest therapeutic hypothermia, this statement about these three days of observation is a little bit obsolete. There are actually studies that talk about patients who have some of these poor prognostic factors but had successful post-cardiac arrest therapeutic hypothermia actually having good outcomes. But these are kind of the general stereotyped things that prognosticate poorly for patients who are in coma. Absence of pupil or, cor or corneal reflexes, stereotyped or uh, absent motor responses to noxious stimuli, isoelectric or birth suppression patterns on EEG, bilateral absent cortical responses on somatosensory evoked potentials, or for anoxic coma, there's actually a fair bit of data that talks about uh, neuron-specific enolase levels in those patients that high levels predict or pretend, I shouldn't say predict, are associated with poor outcome. Uh, we know that prognosis in patients who are in coma from a traumatic cause is better than those patients who are in, who are in coma from non-traumatic causes. And as a general rule, after about those patients who are going to survive, typically about two to four weeks into their coma, they will open their eyes, which is why those of you who spent some time with me on 4South, when I talk, when they say, well, the patient opened their eyes, so their GCS is no longer a one two one, they're now a four two one. great, they're a seven, they're going to do great. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. They're still a two on their motor score repetitive, stereotyped movements, all right? So what happens when you have a brain injury? So this is, you get your brain injury, you're in a coma. What's the most common thing that's gonna happen of these four? Fast recovery, vegetative state, locked-in syndrome, or brain death, what's the most common? Fast recovery, right? The vast majority of patients will fortunately get better, right? Well, what happens in between there? And I wanna talk a little bit about this, and then we're gonna go talk a lot about brain death. But what happens to a, percentage of patients, and again, those patients who have those poor prognostic indicators, will progress to what's known, what used to be known as a vegetative state and is now known as a spectrum of disease somewhere between vegetative state and what we call a minimally conscious state. The vegetative state, as I said, some patients days or weeks following their coma will survive and will open their eyes, right? People, you know people, you've taken care of patients who are living in a permanent vegetative state in nursing homes or at home or wherever, what do they look like, right? They lie there, their eyes are open, but they have zero interaction with their environment. They have the aware, wakefulness component, but no awareness component. They have reflexive motor activity only, devoid of any voluntary interaction with the environment. I will tell you, this is actually probably really, really rare. And much more recently has been described this concept of minimally conscious state, which is a spectrum between fully, fully perfectly okay and a vegetative state. Vegetative state may be a transition to further recovery or it may become permanent. Uh, vegetative state can actually be diagnosed about one month following injury. Um, if the patient is uh, still in this, has these components, one month following injury, they're said to be in a persistent vegetative state. And then one year after TBI and three months after anoxic brain injury, the current definition still gives you that then you, you wind up being in a permanent vegetative state, which doesn't mean you won't ever make recovery, but that's kind of the current definition such as it is. Chances of recovery depend on your age, your, the etiology, again, worse for anoxia, 
and the time that you have spent in the vegetative state. This is what I say to families all the time. The more they do, the sooner they do it, the better off they'll be. I can repeat that mantra every single day. These are just the official cri uh, criteria based on a, a task force that's actually pretty old now from 94. I'm not aware if they've updated this. I need to go take a look. I haven't looked in a while. Um, but these are the criteria. Again, no evidence of awareness of self or environment. No evidence of sustained, reproducible, purposeful, or voluntary behavior. No evidence of language comprehension or expression. Presence of sleep-wake cycles. Again, that wakefulness is preserved. Um, and then you can see the rest of them. And this is what if you do, you know, metabolic studies looking at patients who are normal, patients who are brain dead, versus patients who are in a vegetative state. It's pretty obvious the overall global decrease in metabolic function. <clears throat> well, what about this minimally conscious state? It's kind of an interesting and relatively newer definition. It actually was I described in early two, two, like 2002, uh, and there was a subsequent task force on this. But these are patients who are unable to communicate their thoughts or feelings but demonstrate inconsistent but, reduce, but reproducible behavioral evidence of awareness of self or the environment. It can either be a chronic condition or it can be a permanent condition. Um, we don't know what it takes to, make, have to declare somebody to be in a permanent, minimally conscious state. But similar to veg for vegetative state, prognosis is always better for non-anoxic causes. And these are the criteria. Who remembers Terry Schiavo? Right? So Terry Schiavo's reaction to that balloon, that's why her mom said she's, she's you know, they, everybody said she was in a permanent vegetative state, and she reacted to that balloon. She was the classic minimally conscious state patient. There is purposeful behavior. There can be pursuit eye movement, smiling or crying in response to verbal or visual emotional cues, reaching for objects. And I got to tell you, mo the vast majority of the patients who are living with chronic brain, with significant deficit with chronic brain injury, probably live somewhere within this spectrum, as opposed to truly being in a permanent vegetative state the vast majority of patients do demonstrate some interaction with their environment. This is what, uh, again, metabolic studies look at conscious controls, vegetative state, ignore locked-in syndrome. We can talk about it if you want to. It's super funky. Has anybody ever seen a patient who was locked in? It's super funky, right? I mean, they're basically completely cognitively normal, as you can see here, but they have no motor um, capacity to interact with their environment other than by blinking their eyes. It's super creepy. And then you can see the minimally conscious state is just slightly more metabolic activity than the permanent vegetative state here. And I like this slide because I think it actually really describes this really well, this picture over on the right-hand side, <clears throat> where you have normal consciousness is normal arousal and normal awareness. I hate taking things off the internet. Coma is no arousal, no awareness. Your vegetative state is normal arousal, no awareness. Your minimally conscious state is normal arousal, and then fluctuating or varying levels of awareness of your environment. <clears throat> um, however, and I will just put this in as a kind of uh, a little bit of a footnote, there are now some really fascinating studies that are being done on patients who are in permanent vegetative state or who are very, very, very low level functioning with, uh, with the uh, minimally conscious state who now are manifesting or who you can get to manifest signs of cognition. There was a fascinating study, it was published in Nature, about a woman who had been in a permanent vegetative state for years, who had been an avid tennis player, and they went and described, they put her in a, I think it was a functional MRI they did this with, they repeated it with EEG, and they were describing scenes of tennis with her, and she clearly, there was reaction to what they were talking about. So even though, even when we know that somebody's in a permanent vegetative state or a minimally conscious state, 
we don't actually know what's going on in their brain. All we know about the overt motor manifestations and what we can see and what we can examine. So just keep that in your back of your mind. Again, that's a footnote. All right, well, let's go on. So many patients, coma, fast recovery, vast majority of patients, thank God, right? Coma to vegetative state with some component of recovery, minimally conscious state to a permanent vegetative state versus coma that then progresses to brain death, right? And these are the patients that we see upstairs all the time, unfortunately. You guys see them in the MICU as well. And what is the mechanism by which people progress to brain death? Well, it's kind of, this is a little bit of a simple, very simplistic way of looking at it, but you have neuronal injury, which leads to neuronal swelling, which leads to increased intracranial pressure, which leads to decreased intracranial blood flow, which subsequently results in more neuronal injury, which results in more neuronal swelling, which results in more in increased intracranial pressure. It's compartment syndrome of the head, right? And just like compartment syndrome of the leg or compartment syndrome of the abdomen, compartment syndrome anywhere else, ultimately that vicious, that cycle leads to a state in which your ICP, or the pressure in your brain, is greater than your mean arterial pressure, which is, in fact, incompatible with life, and patients will herniate. So that's the anatomic brain death, but what actually is brain death? Well, it's kind of interesting. How do you define death? So lay people define death very, excuse me, black and white, right? When you're coding somebody, right, and they keep going back into VFib or PEA, when did, they, when did they die, exactly? They died when you said they died, right? Yeah, we're calling this, right? I mean, I can't, I've, I have pronounced, um, people have pronounced, we're recording this. No, but I mean, obviously, like, the true, right? We have somebody who comes in, pen, you know, penetrating injury to the heart, non, anatomically non-survivable injury. They're still fibbing, their heart's still beating. We say we're done, we pronounce the time of death, and we walk away, right? It's kind of an interesting concept. People don't realize, but, <laughs> you know, back in the day, Shakespeare's time, right, before they, before they knew about the circulatory system, living was breathing, right? So your diagnosis of death was made when you stopped breathing. Well, then in 1627, there's your useless fact for the day, the circulatory system was discovered, heartbeat was considered another sign of life, and for years and years and years and centuries, absence of response, respiration, and heartbeat became the medical standard for diagnosing death. However, what happened in the 1950s was the instruction of positive pressure ventilation, so if you think about it, before you had a ventilator, those patients who had devastating neurologic injury and were brain dead by our current criteria would just die a cardiac death because they would not be breathing, right, because they were apneic. They would eventually, their CO2 would go up. Eventually, they would become hypoxic, and their hearts would stop, right? So then we would call them dead. But in the 1950s, all of a sudden, we're taking patients who were in coma, irreversible coma, and we're putting them on ventilators, and so now, all of a sudden, all these patients with devastating what we would consider brain-dead patients were being kept, in quotes, alive. So in the 50s, MGH, this is not Maryland General, by the way, um, began systematically examining pa these patients who were in this coma. They found that the severity of damage could be accurately assessed. Uh, they started doing some EEGs on these patients and found that they, there was electrocerebral silence on EEG, which equated with what we would consider today brain death. And they proposed, these neurologists at Massachusetts General Hospital proposed a certification by, of death by neurologic criteria despite the presence of cardiac function. That subsequently turned into what we all know now as the Harvard criterion. The um, a definition of irreversible coma was published in JAMA. An organ, brain or other, that no longer functions and has no possibility of functioning again is for all practical purposes dead. And that subsequently led to the 1981 President's Commission <clears throat> who determined that brain death can be present when there is irreversible loss of all uh, brain function, both brainstem and cortical, which interestingly is different 
than in Europe. Europe talks about brainstem death. United States, it has to be absence of cortical and brainstem function in the United States. And that led to the Uniform Determination of Death Act, which is an individual who has sustained either irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions or irreversible cessation of the entire brain, including the brainstem, is dead. And this uh, Uniform Determination of Death Act uh, stated that the determination of death must be made in accordance with accepted medical standards, which is what led to different institutions really being the ones to determine how you will, de how you will determine brain death, which is kind of an interesting concept. But it's actually institution-specific, not even state-specific, and there's no federal uh, <coughs> statute that tells you when somebody is brain dead. It's actually an institution thing. In 95, the American Academy of Neurology published practice parameters for the first time that told us how do we establish these clinical criteria for brain death. And they basically outlined it by what we call diagnostic criteria, prerequisites, and, uh, and the presence of coma, uh, the pitfalls in the diagnosis, the clinical observations which were in fact compatible with diagnosis of brain death like uh, peripheral reflexes, what uh, the, the um, role of confirmatory laboratory tests as well as what you then document. And what I wanted to show you, these are obviously, this is your prerequisite, right? Patient has to have a reason. You have to be able to document a reason why the patient, why you think the patient is brain dead. In the trauma center, it's super easy, right? You know, well, they got ejected out the car, pretty sure when their head hit the tree. Um, but over in the MICU, it's not always so easy. I got called a couple, probably a couple months ago now, about a patient over there, and there was no proximate cause that anybody could identify. Um, it was probably an overdose, but it wasn't by a measurable substance. And there was a real discussion about what do we do if we can't really document that this person has an irreversible anatomic or metabolic process. I wanted to point this out because this is something that comes up a fair bit. We, to look at anatomy, there are a couple areas of the brain that we look at when we go back to kind of the anatomy of brain death, of herniation, of that intractable, untreatable intracranial compartment syndrome. So if you look over here, these are obviously two patients with brain injury. But if you look down at the, where the spinal cord's coming up to the brainstem, you see black around the spinal cord here, that's CSF, where you don't see any black around the spinal cord here, because that's tissue that's filling that space. We talk about uh, the fourth ventricle, you see it's open here, completely obliterated here. And then when you look here, these are known as the, baby, the basal cisterns, it looks like a little baby's butt. And you can see complete obliteration of the basal cisterns here. So this is the anatomy of what brain death looks like when our, when our radiologists talk about, clinical, about, talk about radiographic herniation. So when we go back to these kind of criteria by which we define brain death, the prerequisites, as I said, they have to be in a deep coma due to either irremediable, irreversible medical condition or a well-established irremediable structural brain injury and complicating reversible medical conditions that may confound the clinical exam have been excluded like severe electrolyte abnormalities, acid-based disturbances, hypothermia, that type of thing. <clears throat> and we don't really know what the appropriate limits are, but the AAN tried to put some parameters around when is, some, when is somebody's blood pressure too low, when is their temperature too low, when is their blood alcohol too high. And these are the parameters that they came up with, just kind of made them up, but based on kind of best available non-evidence, best available opinion. But the clinical exam is the thing that's really key, and you guys will hear me harp about this all year long, is that the clinical exam is the defining characteristic of brain death. It is not about the flow study. It is all about the clinical exam. And you have to document two things. One is the absence of function, and two is the irreversibility of that absence of function. <clears throat> clinical exam at the University of Maryland has to be documented by an attending physician skilled and trained in clinical brain death assessment 
all of our intensivists are all uh, fall into that category. Neurologists and neurosurgeons do as well. Uh, that you have to document absence of cerebral functions, absence of brainstem functions, including apnea. Uh, so obviously documenting absence of, of cerebral functions, that's pretty standard, pretty routine. You pinch them, you induce pain. Make sure you always do it above the level of the cervical spine in case they have a cervical spinal cord problem, injury in, our, in the case of the trauma center. And you basically pinch them, you know, titty, titty twister, whatever it is that you two choose to do. For those of you who've rounded with Dr. Schwartzbauer, um, I'm telling you that he could wake the dead. Um, and then you go to your cranial nerves, and you're, you're testing your brainstem function. And I typically will do it kind of go two, three, four. I just go down the cranial nerves, so pupils, corneals. But I want to just very briefly mention the concept of doll's eyes and cold calorics, because I think there's a huge misconception about what you're actually doing when you actually do these exams. So if I took Mike right now, if I took Dr. McCurdy, and I instilled cold water against his tympanic membrane, what would happen? He would vomit, like instantly. Apparently, it is pretty impressive. We should try it. <laughs> There's some ice out there, right? But what the normal response would be that his eyes will move in a conjugate fashion away from that noxious stimulus. That's a normal response. That's your, that's that, that is the normal reflex. In a patient who has, your, the role of your midbrain is to coordinate both sides of your body. So in the patient who has <clears throat> bad cortex, but midbrain is not functioning, that patient, you will get a disconjugate movement of the eye away, but it won't be a coordinated activity of both eyes, as opposed to the patient who is brain dead, where you get no response at all. All right, it's a little bit of a misconception about what you're actually looking for. You're actually looking for, for the, for the purposes of brain death testing, you're actually looking for any movement of the eye is not consistent with brain death. Make sense? And then doll's eyes are exactly the same thing. Uh, if you're, in fact, stimulating the exact same nerve, <clears throat> and so you can do one or the other. The apnea test, uh, obviously a conventional apnea test is as described. Are you guys doing carbogen over in the MICU now, or are you still doing conventional? Okay. So conventional apnea test, as described, is basically disconnect the patient from the ventilator, and this is one of my favorite things when I talk about um, how you control some mechanical ventilation on a patient, right? You take them off the ventilator, they don't breathe. What happens to their PCO2? Goes up. What happens to their PO2? Nothing. It's a fascinating concept. You don't need to take a single breath to oxygenate. It's really cool. But anyway, that's off the topic. We can talk about mechanical ventilation, though. It's very helpful when you describe it with that way to the medical students. So you take the patient off the ventilator. You want to supply them with some oxygen so that they do not become, uh, because so once the oxygen diffuses out of, the, out of their alveoli, if you don't replenish that oxygen, they will become hypoxic. And then you draw blood gas at 10 minutes. And what are you looking for? So everybody thinks you were looking for a rise in CO2. What are you actually looking for when you do an apnea test? Apnea, right? I know this sounds so simple, but I cannot tell you the number of people who will take the patient off the vent, put an put a, uh, a uh, nasal cannula down the endotracheal tube, walk away, and then be like, did the blood gas come back yet? That is not an apnea test. The CO2 measurement is determining that, in fact, you have given the patient an adequate stimulus to breathe if they were capable of breathing. The apnea is the essential element of the test. So you need to stand there and watch the patient to make sure that they do not take a breath. That is what a, an apnea test actually is. But people always think it's about the CO2. It's not. The CO2 is just documenting that you have given the patient adequate stimulus to breathe if they were capable of breathing. 
<clears throat> I think I said that. Um, we now do, car we do a lot of carbogen over here for a wide variety of reasons. I can go into the details of why. We're basically, remember what I just said, it's not about the CO2 passively rising. It's about, give, it's about the, the stimulus of the CO2. So why not just give the patient CO2, right? And that's what we do with a carbogen test where we hook them up to a carbon dioxide cylinder, give them CO2, and then watch to see if the patient still is apneic in the presence of a CO2 challenge that would normally stimulate a respiratory drive. And that's all, an, that's all the carbogen apnea test does. The nice things about it, number one, is you leave the patient on the ventilator. So if you spend a bunch of time fixing their sick lungs, you don't lose all your recruitment, right? They don't completely collapse down like they normally do in a conventional apnea test. The other thing that you can do is you can keep the end title hooked up. So you actually have an objective measure as opposed to just staring at their chest, which is what we all, we all did with conventional apnea tests for years. Um, be very, you know, if you're doing an apnea test, particularly for a patient who is a potential donor, you don't want your patient to die a somatic death. I stole that term from Dr. Wood, who unfortunately stepped out. Um, for those of you who haven't met Dr. Wood, uh, he just recently joined our faculty, and he is a world expert in this. So I'm, that's why I'm kind of happy he left. <laughs> I don't have to be so intimidated by him sitting up there. Um, but you want to keep in mind that you don't want somebody to die a somatic death while you're doing an apnea test, meaning if they start getting very acidotic because of the CO2, you start getting hypotensive, et cetera. Um, I have to tell you, I, this is kind of a hard thing for me to swallow. I trained and I very um, strongly believe in this concept of absence of function and irreversibility of that absence of function being your criteria to determine brain death. In 2010, the AAN updated their guidelines and basically said you only need to do one exam. It used to be, and many of you won't remember this, but it used to be two exams separated by a period of time. In adults, it's classically six hours, pediatrics, it's usually 12 hours. Neonates, it's classically 24 hours. Whether or not those exams are done by one per can be done by the same person or different people is, again, beyond the scope of this discussion. But in 2010, the AAN came out saying that basically um, that one complete examination testing all the elements, so every single element must be tested, including an apnea test, may be sufficient for the diagnosis. And for me, I have a little bit of a, and this is my own opinion, my, a little bit of a moral, I don't know if that's the right word, problem with that because I think that we have neglected, by doing that, we neglect this irreversibility component. Now, I freely acknowledge the reason they stated this is there's never been a case report of somebody who had a complete exam that was consistent with brain death who then wasn't dead on their second exam, right? So I understand the data doesn't support doing two exams, but it seems that we lost a little bit of that intrinsic definition. But again, that's my opinion. Ancillary testing, everybody wants to just send the patient to flow, right? Well, current appropriate ancillary test that we use, an EEG, um, it's a little bit technically more difficult to do. Um, uh, classically, we use a lot of flow studies around here. It's obviously a nuclear medicine test. Conventional angiogram is a perfectly appropriate test. You will see no flow in the intracranial cranial circulation. But all of these tests do not prove brain death in the, abs in the absence of contradictory clinical findings. What do the nuclear medicine people do when they call you with the results? What's the first question they always ask you? What's the clinical exam, right? Is the clinical exam consistent? And then when you look at their read, how do they read the flow study? That the flow study is consistent with the clinical exam, right? Because it is not a diagnostic tool, it is a confirmatory study. When do you use them? Um, classically, we say if you cannot complete a, a full exam, the patient won't tolerate an apnea test, you can't do doll's eyes or cold calorics because they ruptured TMs or their C-spine's not cleared or for whatever reason you can't complete a clinical exam, then an ancillary test is preferred 
um, in order to in order as a kind of second line thing to do. I personally like doing a, uh, a flow study, especially if you have a family who's having a hard time with the concept. I like showing them the pictures. I actually think it's very helpful. These are just a couple pictures. That is what your conventionally in geography will look like. This is what your EEG looks like. You basically just see a flat line. Transcranial Doppler is actually a uh, accepted modality. We don't tend to do it here, uh, but it's actually considered in the AAN guidelines, it's considered an acceptable modality. Um, and then again, the, has everybody seen a flow study? So this is, what it look, this is actually what it looks like. Um, and you get what's called the hot nose sign, where the nose, the extracranial circulation lights up very nicely and no intracranial circulation. CTA, um, not a currently approved, proven, I guess is probably a better word, modality. In fact, the one study I saw, I saw that was um, presented on this, I actually never saw the article was they actually had a number of patients where they, this institution was doing, they, part of their brain death evaluation was doing CT scans anyway. So they just decided to, give, to do CTAs on all these patients. And they actually had a number of patients who were pronounced by clinical criteria plus flow study who actually demonstrated some flow on their CTA, which to me does not say that CTA is necessarily a bad test. It just means that probably the CTA actually may be a little bit more, more sensitive. That being said, it is not a currently approved uh, confirmatory study, but I can, can't imagine that 10 years from now it won't be. So I just put it in there for completeness. This is what our brain death evaluation form looks like uh, at, the, at the University of Maryland. I have no idea what it'll look like on EPIC, so say goodbye to that. And did we even build one? I don't even know. <laughs> and then what do you do? How do you tell the family? I typically um, try to do the same thing every time. And those of you who spend some time on Fort South with me have uh, seen the way I do it. It's not necessarily the right way, or it's certainly not the only way. I typically try to do these types of discussions in three discussions. I think if you walk families through this process, it is much more, uh, it's, it's somehow a little bit easier to accept for them. Not for everybody, but sometimes. And what I typically do is the first conversation is devastating brain injury. I'm sorry. Devastating brain injury. And then you stop, right? Let them do what they need to do. Next conversation is we are going to proceed with brain death testing. And I always tell them in that second conversation, if the brain death testing is consistent with brain death, if there is evidence that there is no blood flow to the brain, your mother, brother, sister, father will be pronounced dead at that time. And I use the word dead. I use the word pronounced. I think it's really, really important to not be ambiguous about this. And then the third conversation I have with the family is these were the results of, this, of the test. This is the time that they were pronounced. It's not easy to do. Um, Tony, you were with them. That, I mean, there are some families that just don't get it, right? I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. And it, you just sometimes have to walk people through the process. In my 14 years here, I don't think anybody, Carl, do we have anybody? I've had two families in the 14 years I've been here where we could not get them to come around. Um, I will tell you something that I do, and this is actually, there's some data to support this, and I need to pull the article. I keep, keep uh, meaning to change this slide, but this is um, some work. Isaac Tawil, who was a fellow with us, God, 10 years ago now, published this, uh, subsequently pre presented this poster and then subsequently published a paper that basically looked at family presence during brain death examination and that the understanding of brain death was dramatically increased. And I will tell you, we just had a patient up in Fourth South where, um, especially if you're doing a carbogen test and you keep them hooked up to the end tidal CO2, that flashing on the screen of no breath detected is a really powerful thing for families to see. 
And I, I welcome them to be part of, of that process so they can see what we see. And I think it's hugely helpful, particularly if you have a family who is really having a hard time with the concept. All right, let's move on and talk a little bit or a fair bit about the uh, physiologic derangements following brain death. So the variety of physiologic derangements, which are pretty profound following brain death. Has everybody taken care of a patient who, as they progress to brain death here? Has anybody not had that opportunity? Some of the students probably haven't. That's OK. Um, but it's really, it's a pretty impressive series of physiologic things that occur. There are cardiovascular effects, there are pulmonary effects, endocrine abnormalities, hypothermia, coagulopathy. It's a pretty remarkable concept. And what happens to the cardiovascular system is very reproducible. It happens every single time. But this progression of brain death causes this rostral to caudal ischemia. And there are basically two phases. As the medulla starts to become ischemic, there's this initial profound sympathetic surge. And what that is, is the brain's attempt, that's your, that's your exaggerated Cushing's reflex, right? It's the brain's attempt to maintain perfusion. Thank you so much, Mike. Um, and you get the patients, their blood pressure shoots up to 300 over 220, right? I mean, you just, it, every time. And the first thing that happens is the nurses who are not experienced go, I'm going to give some labetalol. You can, but watch out. Because the next thing that happens is as this ischemia progresses down, you then get this complete absence of sympathetic tone. You get a complete sympathectomy. And then the patients, next thing you know, their blood pressure is 50. And it's really very reproducible. It happens all the time. Um, brain ischemia in and of itself causes cardiovascular dysfunction because it also induces myo uh, myocyte necrosis in the myocardium. So if you have somebody who is brain dead but is being uh, maintained, their, som their somatic life, again, stolen from Dr. Wood, uh, is being maintained, ultimately they cannot, they, they will, their heart will stop. And a large part of it is thought to be due to this concept of myocyte necrosis that, that occurs, just like any other part of your brain that's necrotic, or any, I'm sorry, any other part of your body, right, your dead piece of bowel, what happens? It makes you sick. Dead brain does the same thing. Um, ultimately, that will result in cardiovascular dysfunction, vasodilatation, hypotension in some studies is present in up to 80% of brain dead donors and is sustained in about 20%. Um, these are profoundly compounded by hypovolemia as well as endocrine dysfunction, which I'll talk about. Arrhythmias are described as being common. I don't. To be honest with you, I don't see them very often, and I take care of a lot of patients who, who progress to brain death, but they are described in the literature. What happens to your lungs, <clears throat> right? Well, this is kind of the concept behind why we think neurogenic pulmonary edema occurs, a disease most commonly found in textbooks, because I don't think I've ever actually seen neurogenic pulmonary edema. What, what caused it, who knows? But the concept behind why we think the neurogenic pulmonary edema part of this, and I totally agree with both of you, is that at this moment of peak vasoconstriction, when you have this massive sympathetic surge, your left-sided heart pressures temporarily exceed your pul pulmonary pressures, which halts pulmonary blood flow, a little bit absurd, which then causes lung injury and then causes significant interstitial edema. So it actually is thought to be due to this profound sympathetic response that these patients get as they progress to brain death. That's the classic uh, teaching. I don't know that anybody's ever proven that pathophysiology, but... Um, your hypoxia then gets horribly compounded by VQ mismatch, atelectasis, pneumonia, aspiration, the pulmonary edema that we induced while we were coding the patient for three hours, right? Uh, contusions, pneumothoraces, et cetera. Endocrine abnormalities are super interesting following brain death. Because um, if you think about it, what happens to your pituitary and your hypothalamus when you herniate, they become completely ischemic, right? They have no blood flow. And so you get these rapid disturbances in the hypothalamic pituitary access. And so your vasopressin, right, DI, 
a huge percentage of these patients go into diabetes insipidus, as well as you get suppression of thyroid hormone release. Additionally, you also get a reduced insulin release due to catecholamine or inotrope infusion, which is then compounded uh, by large-volume dextrose solutions that we use to treat our DI, the stress responses, right? You get this increase in counter-regulatory hormones, changes in carbohydrate metabolism, as well as a per overall peripheral resistance to insulin. So this autonomic surge, which ca causes decreased um, T3 levels, cortisol, and insulin, also causes very profound systemic effects by converting aerobic into anaerobic metabolism, classically, depleting myocardial oxygen stores, and then causing a lactate accumulation, and again, ultimately, organ function deterioration. You really can't live for very long without your pituitary, your hypothalamus, unless we replace those hormones. Hypothermia occurs very frequently, again, for the exact same reason, right? Your hypothalamus is what typically controls your, uh, your temperature. Uh, it's this hypothalamic failure. You become poikilothermic, right? You're like a lizard, right? Which is why these patients all need warming blankets and bear huggers, that type of thing. You also get a marked decrease in heat production by an overall decrease in metabolic activity and then increased heat loss due to the vasodilatation that was induced by your sympathectomy. That hypothermia can certainly contribute to hemodynamic instability. It causes myo uh, myocardial depression. In addition, vasodilatation, coagulopathy, a left shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, a cold-induced diuresis, and at very low temperatures, you can get refractory dysrhythmias, as we know. The coagulopathy that occurs is also really, really interesting. And again, this is probably older mechanisms. There's a lot of interest about why brain injury in and of itself causes coagulopathy. But the, again, the classic teaching is that there's a continuous release of large amounts of tissue, of tissue thromboplastin and plasminogen from the ischemic and necrotic brain, which is thought to be some of the mechanism behind why it occurs in traumatic brain injury as well, which is then obviously compounded by the hypothermia, any ongoing hemorrhage, and then any fluid resuscitation that we use which can induce a more uh, profound uh, dilutional coagulopathy. This is an old, it's not even a study, it, it was in a guideline that I found um, that looked at what are the incidence of pathophysiologic changes after brain death. You can see 80% hypotension, in my experience, much higher percentage of patients who go into DI. DIC, I don't know that I've ever actually seen it, um, but this is kind of what's out there. So we actually just recently, um, Jen Miller, one of our fellows from last year, I just presented this neuro, at the Neurocritical Care Society. She better be writing a manuscript as we speak. Um, and what we actually did was we looked at 105 patients uh, that we had at the trauma center. Um, and if you, you can see here, these are our numbers. 80% uh, had hypotension, 90% uh, had respiratory dysfunction, 75% diabetes insipidus, acidosis, renal dysfunction, hypothermia. And the point of this was to basically say these were all patients who went on to be successful donors. So this was kind of a twofold thing, one to describe the, the actual incidence of some of these dis organ dysfunctions, but also to say that even in the presence of many of highly dysfunctional organs, many of those could be successfully transplanted, which leads to why we do organ donor management. Well, that was a perfect segue that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> Speaking of organ donor management, so you know, there are many people who have some philosophical issues with the concept of brain death. Um, as I said, everybody will ultimately die a somatic death once they are brain dead. So why do we bother to pronounce people dead by neurologic criteria? Right? Why not just ultimately their heart will stop? Well, it actually was put, this was really pushed forward by an interest in obtaining organs. Um, and some people actually have a little bit of a philosophical or moral objection to that. I personally do not because I personally, if it was me, please take it. I'm not using them, you know, so I'm okay with it personally, but there, but there's, especially there are some religious groups that really feel like the old movement behind um, death by neurologic criteria is actually that the um, impetus behind it was not as pure 
as we might think it was, which is just kind of a philosophical uh, point of interest. But you can see organs, need, people need organs, right? Transplantation, we all um, are well aware of the need. I pulled these numbers two days ago. This, these are the current lists. I think what's actually really interesting, the number of pancreas, um, uh, people waiting for pancreas transplants has gone down really remarkably since the last time I updated this. So I was actually very surprised. Um, and I really think because they're doing, what? I think they're doing a lot more islet cell um, uh, um, transplants. And I think actually a lot of the diabetes meds have gotten so much better now. It's really interesting. That's a dramatic decrease. This was, I think it's like half the number it was like two years ago. It's really interesting to me. Um, so what do we do when we have a patient who is either at risk of or has, uh, we have pronounced dead? Well, federal law, and again, going back to kind of the morality behind this, requires that hospitals report all deaths and imminent deaths to a, your local OPO, which obviously here is Living Legacy Foundation. And our current um, institutional uh, policy is that uh, who should be referred to the Maryland donor referral line, all patients prior to withdrawal of life-sustaining medical treatment when brain death is imminent, and they define that by a GCS of less than five, or when any patient dies, and obviously once a patient has already died of somatic death, the purposes of that are really for a matter of tissue, potential tra tissue transplantation. Um, where does this all come from? Well, there is a, the Uniform Anatomic Gift Act, which was from 1968, uh, which uh, determined that in the United States it requires explicit consent for organ donation. That is uh, diametrically opposed to what many European countries have chosen to do, where you have explicit refusal, right? So you are an organ donor unless you have explicitly refused. What do they do in Japan? I'm just curious. Sorry, I don't mean to put you on the spot. You may not know. You have to consent. Yeah, that's what. Um, but in Europe, many many countries in Europe, <clears throat> um, there is some data out there that talks about this decoupling of the discussion of brain death with the discussion of donation. Um, going back to kind of some of our families who have a harder time with the concept, I have certainly been accused of doing this for, to get his organs. Um, you know, which is why decoupling those discussions and really having them separated in time can be helpful. And there's also um, some data that approaching uh, the families should be done by a designated requester or the OPO staff. So you, uh, Dr. Shanholtz, I'm sure, gets his, the, the MICU statistics every quarter, whatever it is that Tyree sends out. And if you ever look at neurotrauma or the TRU and our, our uh, appropriate requester rates are low, that's me. I personally, depending on the family, this is my patient. And donation to me is about a patient's end of life wishes. So I personally have no problem making that part of my end of life discussion with that family. So I get dinged all the time for being an inappropriate requester. I don't, I don't go in with the paperwork, but I don't think there's anything wrong with me saying, when I say to him, you know, you're, I'm sorry, your you know, family member has been pronounced at this time. Um, the results of that testing were confirmatory. Um, they have been pronounced. And they always look at you, right? And what, do they, what do they do? What's the first thing they say? Well, what happens now? And for me to go, you know what? Hang on one second. I have somebody who can come talk to you about that. I think it's just it's artificial and it's a little, a little bit ridiculous. So what I you tip will say, and you guys, many of you who worked with me have heard me say this, is I say, well, we need to, if, um, if your brother, wife, mother, sister, husband, um, would have wanted to be an organ donor, then we have possibilities with respect to that. And I have, you know, there are people who can talk to you more about that who have more details than I do. What are absolute contraindications? And I put this in quotes because there is no such thing as an absolute contraindication anymore. These are the classic ones, HIV, HTLV, um, rabies, 
Rabies still a contraindication, apparently. Um, <laughs> apparently, if you have mad cow, no organs. Um, but even like HIV, there's now a, a big interest in potentially taking HIV positive, serology positive organs for donation to HIV positive recipients, right? We now know HIV is a chronic disease. It's no longer um, you know, a death sentence like it was not so long ago. Um, and then this concept of active malignancy, again, it depends on stage, it depends on latency, it depends on lots of things. So these are all kind of, they're considered absolute contraindications, <coughs> but there is some leeway. So I, so I would never, I would never tell a family they are, your loved one is not a candidate based on this list. I would allow the LOPO to, to make that determination. That's not my job. Um, these are what we do when we evaluate a donor, or when they evaluate a donor, I should say, kind of your basic background stuff, nothing too surprising here. When they talk about doing serologies, right, they'll oftentimes do serologies before the patient is pronounced if the family has given permission or has already raised the concept of uh, organ donation, and they're basically looking for a variety of infectious diseases, and they can actually start doing some HLA typing at that time as well. Um, who's a candidate for what? I guess it's kind of good for you guys to know about. Um, it used to be age less than 55. That is now, as people get older and are healthier and living longer, that's not so rigid anymore to be a heart donor. Um, they are typically evaluated by EKG, chest X-ray, echo, TEE. Uh, cardiac catheterization for all do potential donors over the age of 40 is still kind of the standard. And then we don't really do CPKs or CKMBs anymore, but obviously troponin levels to look for evidence of myocyte damage. What about lung donors? And this is the reason I bring this up, because you guys will be asked to do this. The way we currently have things set up in Maryland, at least at the University of Maryland, is once the patient is pronounced and consented and this process begins, um, the OPO obviously assumes care of the patient. And they do all the medical direction. Dr. Habashi, uh, who's actually one of our partners, um, is their medical director. So they actually, everything that they're doing is under his direction. However, there are a variety of procedures that they would ask us to do, because obviously Dr. Habashi doesn't have privileges at every hospital in the state of Maryland, um, to, for example, like the bronchoscopy. Bronchoscopy is absolutely an essential part of uh, the workup for, an, uh, um, for a lung donor. Uh, they typically will put them on 100%, check a couple ABGs, make sure their chest x-ray doesn't show any huge structural abnormality. The bronchoscopy again, and here's what you're looking for in the bronchoscopy. No evidence of aspiration or sepsis. <clears throat> um, no organisms uh, on the gram stain. Uh, so you go down, take a look, make sure there's no huge anatomic abnormality. S suck some sputum for them, give them a sample, and move on your way. Uh, pancreas donors are typically evaluated by uh, serial blood glucose determinations and amylase and lipase levels. Um, interestingly, uh, the new recommendations, and I, I somewhere have the reference for you guys, and I think that's what, this is what I sent out to you like yesterday. Um, this is actually a really nice new consensus statement that was put out like a couple weeks ago, um, but that actually insulin requirements are not a preclusion for successful uh, pancreas transplantation these days. Uh, liver donors are actually pretty easy to evaluate, blood group subtyping, LFTs, your coags, your kidney donors, that's what they look for. So this concept of organ donor management is kind of an interesting one. And again, in the, in the state of Maryland, Dr. Habashi directs the organ donor management, but that may not be true wherever you guys go. And so I think knowing why we do what we do, <gasps> wow, sorry, is really important, but you're not going to hear about it today. No. Um, I will give you guys these slides. I'll, I will flip through super, super quickly. So this is the um, article that I was talking about. This is a very nice consensus uh, statement that was put out by the SCCM, uh, ASIP, and uh, the uh, Association of OPOs that really has 
all the latest and greatest on organ donor management, of which there is none. I want to show you one really interesting thing. I think I went through it. But uh, the prefer, here we go, dopamine. Is they are, that, that's still the first line vasoactive agent for organ donors. Why? Because nobody's restudied it since we actually use dopamine. So some of these, they're based on the best available data that's out there. If you read them, they actually put in a bunch of caveats with respect to that. But um, basically, the concept of organ donor management, and again, I apologize, I ran so, so far over. I didn't think I was running that long, um, is really about taking, protecting the organs, right? <coughs> and keeping in mind that organs have different um, interests, right? You want to keep the lungs on the dry side, but you want to keep the kidneys on the wet side. So it's about finding that delicate balance. Um, and again, I, I highly encourage you, if you want to know more about this, to go, and I'm happy, I will give you guys these slides. The last thing I want to mention is this concept of um, the hormonal package. Um, and basically, all, basically, in 2015, all donors get three things. They get vasopressin, they get steroids, and they get uh, some component of thyroid hormone. Um, and again, that's to combat the endocrine abnormalities that I mentioned, talked about earlier. Um, just very last thing, I just want to mention, because you guys will get asked to do this donation after cardiac death. Um, who's done the DCD? They're really pretty unpleasant sometimes. Um, I will tell you a super quick second story. Um, so DCD is obviously done after a decision is made by a family or by a patient to uh, withdraw life-sustaining therapy, right? We, that's the decision that has been made. The uh, patient can then be evaluated to see if they'd be appropriate for a donation after cardiac death, meaning we, allow the, we withdraw life-sustaining therapy and allow the patient to die of cardiac death and then let very rapidly proceed with a recovery of kidney, liver, and potentially lungs, sometimes pancreas. Pancreas recipients don't tend to do that well with the DCDs. Um, but I'll tell you my favorite donation story, my favorite good death story, actually. Um, I had a patient who was a C2 complete. He was 60-something years old. He was a lawyer. He was um, body surfing on the eastern shore with his uh, grandchildren for his uh, anniversary, him and his wife, and they had like, their five kids and their 15 grandchildren, and he was body surfing with the grandkids and C2 complete. And he was like, nope, not, don't want to live this way. And this was before we had the diaphragm pacers. This is probably about 10 years ago now. And we brought his pastor in. We traked him so he could communicate better. Brought his pastor in. His wife agreed. Brought his lawyer in so he could settle his affairs. And he looked at me and he said, I would like to be an organ donor. So it was the only time I have ever done an organ donor on a patient who was not neurologically, a brain devastated. But I will tell you, it was one of the most um, rewarding deaths I have ever facilitated. It's what he wanted for himself. And I really think that that is, again, when I think back about why I pay any attention to this, it's really about what a patient would want for themselves. And, it, and everybody's different. Um, so never assume, because you never know. Um, but I will leave it at that. I will provide the slides. You guys have the references. And I'm happy to answer questions. I apologize for running over.